Hello, Grace Church family, and Happy New Year if I haven't met you. My name is Adam Spees. I hope that you're looking forward and enjoying your new year. I hope that we're celebrating a Buckeyes win. Uh, maybe you are enjoying sauerkraut. Uh, I'm not sure where the origin of that tradition came. I love Rubens, but don't desire sauerkraut on New Year's. Uh, for many of us, New Year's is a fresh start, uh, a new beginning. And for some of us, that comes along with resolutions. Some of us may be against resolutions, but uh, we have aspirations, desires. Some of those may be uh, to get out of debt, maybe budget more. Uh, maybe it's to lose a little weight. Maybe it's to start a new hobby. Uh, maybe it is just to be more organized, to spend less time on social media, things that we want to start, things that we want to stop. As you encourage your spiritual rhythm in the new year, I'd invite you, uh, as with every series, we do a study guide that's available online. We also have printed copies here uh, available at the church. And uh, that is one way just to develop a plan to spend time with God uh, throughout the week. And so those are designed for 10, 15 minutes, five days a week. I'd encourage you, uh, do it with someone else. Uh, I have my men's group, a few of us are doing a plan kind of throughout the year. If we can be helpful in recommending uh, resources to you, we'd love to do that. Just email us at Norton at Grace Ohio, and uh, we will do that. Hey, we start a new conversation over the next three weeks, and this conversation is looking at the invitation of Jesus. We're going to look at three separate accounts where Jesus makes an invitation that clarifies who he is, what he's come to do, and what he offers you and I. All of us love receiving an invitation, right? Whether it's to a wedding, um, a birthday party, maybe a text out to dinner. Uh, what it is, an invitation is requesting our presence, that someone desires to uh, be with us and spend time with us. And so uh, today's invitation is uh, one that is maybe a little bit more familiar with us. Maybe they're words that you've seen posted on social media or words that you've read yourself. And uh, this invitation is one that rolls right off the tongue. It brings uh, initial refreshment to our soul. There's a British uh, pastor who says it this way, this exquisite passage is like a flower, which one is almost afraid to touch, lest he should spoil the delicate bloom. Yet to disturb the flower may awake a fragrance and distribute it to others. The invitation that we're going to explore today is found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. I'd love for you, maybe at home, uh, wherever you're watching this, uh, that you can maybe grab a Bible, read it along with me, look at the screen, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A passage with much significance. 
Today, I hope to explore this invitation, the incentive behind the invitation, and the instruction that's included. Now, with every invitation, we must ask who's the guest list, right? Uh, you know, my daughter has a birthday party uh, this evening, the day that I'm recording it. And, um, you know, based on size and uh, how you can accommodate, there's an exclusive guest list. But Jesus makes it clear here in this invitation that it's for all people. Now, others questioned this claim that Jesus's invitation was inclusive, that it included all people. There was another scenario where someone was questioning uh, this invitation. And so Jesus tells a story, a parable with uh, significant spiritual uh, truths, meanings. And in this story that's recorded in Luke chapter 14, the parable of the great banquet, Jesus tells a story about someone that throws this exquisite banquet. And uh, others had received the invite previously. And so they had time to prepare for this. And uh, he sent his servant as the preparations were coming to uh, be finalized, right? In the party, the banquet was ready to be thrown, uh, to go out and remind and invite those uh, to come. And we've, we, we hear of three different people that declined the invitation. The first is someone who had bought land and said they want to go look at the land that they just bought, right? It's a horrible excuse. Who buys land before seeing it, right? And then someone very similar says, I just bought some oxen. I want to tend to them. And someone else says, I just got married, right? Um, now, uh, maybe uh, we think they're on their honeymoon, but who declines a social invite? All of these uh, um, excuses highlight the insincerity of those who receive the invitation. And so the servant comes back and the master of the banquet says, invite the, the lame, the poor, the crippled to come celebrate this. And uh, Jesus intentionally chooses those because he's highlighting a truth that he wants to make clear, right? That those who received the first invite were the Jewish nation and they rejected his teachings. But Jesus has always been about all people even those that the Jews or the Pharisees of the law deemed unclean, unworthy of the invitation to the messianic kingdom. And so Jesus in this story is making it clear that it's an inclusive invitation for all people. And the blessings of the kingdom, they're available to all who come by faith, but it begins with this idea of humility in recognizing our need, right? Because the invitation Jesus offers is available to all, but in particular, it's appealing for those who are spiritually destitute and downtrodden. I find it significant in the invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, what was going on in the verses right before. Matthew records, uh, chronicles Jesus' second prayer, right? We see the Lord's Prayer early, earlier in the Sermon of the Mount. And here, this is the words Jesus is saying. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned 
and revealed them to little children. Jesus wasn't saying that the wise couldn't be in relationship to them, but they must come in humility like a little child. They must lay their self-righteousness down and look at themselves as destitute, as downtrodden. Jesus' invitation is to all of us who are weary and burdened. Author and pastor Dane Ortland, uh, who wrote a great book kind of off the premise of this passage called Gentle and Lowly, says, if you're working yourself to death, trying to fix your life, labor, or if your life is weighed down by something outside of your control, heavy laden, burden, Jesus calls you to himself. Jesus didn't go to the powerful, the mighty, the impressive, but rather those who are worn out, those who were heavy laden, those who were burdened. Are you experiencing the weariness of life? Are you experiencing the weightiness of sin? Has pain, brokenness, and loss left you weary in this life? Has trials, temptations, and the reality of a fallen world left your soul desperate for something more? Maybe you're experiencing the weightiness of past mistakes. Maybe guilt and despair just surround you as you ponder and think through the past. Maybe you're experiencing the weariness of having to prove yourself, right? Some of us are perfectionists, workaholics. I would tend to more think of trying to fight for people's approval, which I can struggle with, right? We become weary trying to prove ourselves that we are worthy of love and of acceptance. Maybe the pace of life has left you weary. You know, at one time, even in certain settings, right, uh, like in Amish country, uh, people take buggy rides, (laughs) And the pace of our life is very different. We can wear weariness as a badge of honor, right? That we run from one thing to the next, never having time uh, to rest, uh, to rejuvenate, to refresh. And we can do it trying to prove ourselves just to keep up with each other. And there might be many reasons, especially as we finish this year, that We're weary and burdened. And it doesn't just mean physical exhaustion, but it's this weariness of our soul, which is often felt before it's seen. We hear these voices that will never do enough, be enough. And in our reaction, we try and do more and more until there's nothing left to give. Do you know that your need is not a problem for Jesus? He asks you, desires you to bring your need to him. Your weariness and burden uh, is a delight for him. Uh, We were in a conversation a few weeks ago with my men's group, and uh, one of the fathers shared how, uh, you know, he has his up and down moments, as all of us do as a father. But he said, when my children are sick, he's on top of my game right? I'm on top of my game. He says, I serve them. I'm compassionate. 
I'm understanding. Like I do everything I can to make them feel better. God in much of the same way. He's not disgruntled and discouraged by our weariness, by our burdens, but rather he delights in being able to care for us and love us and have compassion towards us. While this weariness and burden has lots of application, there is a specific instance that Jesus is referring to here in this passage. And it's an instance of those who had been a part of the Jewish religion who found themselves heavy laden with the burdens that had been cast upon them. And Jesus specifically references this. We see it also later in the book of Matthew, talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They are the ones that sit in Moses' seat, and they don't practice what they preach. Instead, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What was Jesus referring to was the law that they um, put, the expectations regarding the law on others. I find it interesting that they had 613 laws uh, that they um, thought others needed to live by, that they needed to fulfill. And where they got the number 613 is so fascinating and interesting, right? They took the Ten Commandments and they took the text there and saw that there were 613 characters. And so they looked through the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they came up with 613 laws, right? And they chose uh, one for each day. They chose 365 negative commands along with 248 affirmative commands. And all of these commands left them exhausted, bearing the weight of the impossible burden that no human could live up to, that they could never meet God's expectation. And so Jesus is specifically addressing this burden that the Pharisees have laid upon them, that they are weary, that they are heavy laden, and his invitation counters something that. He invites them to come to me. He doesn't say, earn me. He doesn't say, deserve me. But rather, the invitation is just to come to him. This is a point of exclamation. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, guys and gals, I'm over here. Come to me. I'm not hard to find. I'm accessible. I'm available. Turn to me, right? This invitation is not for uh, sometime in the future, but rather it's a here and now invitation. It's not that anyone has to do anything to get ready. It's an immediate offer to come into the presence of Jesus. The simplicity of his promise is both striking and refreshing. Jesus doesn't offer some fourfold path 
of peace to give enlightenment like Buddha does. He doesn't offer five pillars of peace through submission as Islam does. Nor does he offer 20 ways to relieve your weariness that we pragmatic 21st century Americans are so drawn to. Unique to anyone else in human history, Jesus simply offers himself as the universal solution to everything that burdens us. His simple invitation, it's bold, it's audacious, because the inclination is that he has the power, the ability to lift the burdens that you and I carry, that he has all authority, all power to be able to fulfill his promise that we see. The invitation Jesus gives is to come to a person. It is to a relationship, not a religion. This is one of uh, the essential things of Christianity that must be caught and taught. And it is, we're not invited to a system of beliefs uh, to maybe a, a theology of a church or a practice, but rather we're invited into a relationship. That's where the gospel is drastically different than any and every religion. We see the differences kind of played out. That religion says, bring your doing. It's all about what we can do to work towards to get to God. That religion is our attempt to get to God when a relationship with God is something that's being offered. That there's nothing we need to do rather than to just come to him. Religion, uh, it's preservation of self. To be uh, self-reliant, self-sufficient. It leads to pride and arrogance. But a relationship with Jesus begins when it says, that I'm powerless, that I'm unable to do anything in my own merit to deserve this relationship, to deserve forgiveness, to deserve eternal life. Romans 5, 6 says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Religion offers us to work to become better, that we're not that bad, that we have enough endurance and energy to where a relationship says that we need to recognize I need rescued. Makes me think of a illustration that I heard that highlights the difference of religion and relationship. And it has to do with swimming. I don't know about you, but I always thought I was a decent swimmer, right? I would race in the pool when I was young and could beat uh, most people. But I remembered uh, when I worked at a summer camp, summer's best two weeks, uh, how bad of a swimmer <laughs> that I really was. When I faced other competition that I couldn't pass the lifeguard test that I saw young kids uh, who were much better equipped uh, as a swimmer than I was. And the story goes like this. Imagine uh, we're in the middle of an ocean and we're drowning. Religion stands on the shore and says, you have enough 
energy and effort you can get out of this situation yourself. Swim to shore. And they're shouting instruction from the shore. But the gospel, it tells us about a God who jumped in and saved us. In our powerless state, we recognize our need that we are unable to save ourselves. And that is the difference. Have you recognized your need for Savior? Have you given up your attempt to be able to swim to shore out of your own effort to earn your salvation? A relationship with Jesus comes by recognizing the state of our powerlessness, the need to be rescued. If you're exhausted from working only to fail, you're invited to Jesus. If you're a burden from trying to do good on your own strength, you're invited to Jesus. If you feel a heaviness of your heart that you want to be free of, you're invited to Jesus. If you struggle with a propensity to sin, you're invited to Jesus. If you have remorse over past regrets, you're invited to Jesus. If you struggle with anxiety, uncertainty, and stress, you're invited to Jesus. God's love moves and initiates towards me. He makes himself available, accessible. The invitation is that here and now we come to him. But I think there's something more about what we see his character revealed. Charles Spurgeon says that this is the only place we see in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of his heart. Now, not his physical heart. The Bible talks about the heart as kind of the control central um, of our uh, human existence, right? And uh, we see kind of a picture of the character of God here in the description that he gives of himself. If you were to use two words to describe God, what would they be? Right? I think these two words are all-encompassing to describe God's character. Author Dane Ortland says, The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but rather open arms. He's not harsh or reactionary. He's not easily put out or frustrated. He's not there to strike us down. He's the most understanding person in the world. I think the significant thing is that we understand the incentive is the person behind the invite. Now, you and I have probably all accepted invitations um, somewhat caring less about maybe the person who's the center of attention at that party, right? And maybe it's more of the hoopla and uh, what we get to experience. But here, first and foremost, the incentive behind the invitation is the person of Jesus, who's gentle, which means that he is pleasant, mild, soothing, friendly. His foundational disposition is not to destroy you, but to save you, not to strike you, but to comfort you, not to do violence, but to be gentle. When we go our wrong way, our own path, he gently redirects us. He doesn't shame us, doesn't embarrass us. He leads us back to himself. 
and he falls in love again with us. His love doesn't change. He's accessible. He's available. He's also humble. He's meek. He's understanding. He's not easily irritated at his deepest core. He's a servant that he came to serve, not to be served. He doesn't need to see be seen as impressive, though he is. He jumps into our messiness. He gladly rejoices in serving the unworthy, the forgiving, and forgiving the guilty. And we see the incentive behind the invite is the person of Jesus. Now, he gives us a promise here. And this promise is something that we all desire. Because we recognize uh, the restlessness that you and I experience. And it is rest that he offers, specifically rest for our souls. I find it fascinating that uh, Jesus here is uh, quoting, um, alluding to an Old Testament statement found in Jeremiah. It's like when Jesus speaks, he's God, God with skin on, right? He just so naturally is quoting from the word of God because he wrote it. It's, it's in him. And this found in Jeremiah 6 is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look at the ancient path, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Later in Jeremiah, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. Jesus here offers us rest for our souls. The need for rest is evident. We may live in a time that is the most restlessness that we can think of, right? And this rest is deeper than any uh, good night's sleep, right? But it is a rest only found in him, a complete rest. Rest from the cares of the world, though there are many. Rest from sorrows that plague us, though they may continue. Rest from the need to make ourselves acceptable. We strive to be perfect, but yet we can be free, fully embraced in who Jesus is. I find it interesting that this invitation is kind of packaged. We mentioned what was right before, but a conversation that he had with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12, specifically 1 through 8. And there, the Pharisees, uh, they were really good at this, uh, had made a hedge of protection. Uh, they, they broke, um, they thought that breaking the Sabbath was kind of of first importance, that they wanted to guard against it. So they made many other uh, rules uh, to guard against doing so. And so Jesus was out with his disciples and just picking grain on the Sabbath. And uh, they're like, that's unlawful, right? And so they kind of approach Jesus of like, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus never sins, never makes a mistake, right? Well, he broke their hedge of protection around the law and not the Sabbath. And you see just in the conversation how they had twisted the idea of the Sabbath and twisted the idea of rest. Jesus shows that the Sabbath is not merely about rest as a form of worship, but rather 
worship as a form of rest, right? That ultimately we find rest for our souls in him. And so they viewed not breaking the Sabbath as worthy of worship. When Jesus is saying, first and foremost, worship me and you will find rest. That this weight that you carry, you no longer need to carry. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Now, the invitation of Jesus that promises rest, it does so because of the work of Christ. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not from ourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works that any of us should boast. But rather, in verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece, that we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That Jesus has done everything on our behalf that offers us the relationship. But that relationship, and even in the rest, is not excluded from work. It's not work to earn something. It's work out of joy and abundance. It's work that's enjoyable, fulfilling. It really changes how we view work, right? We know that work was given before the fall, before sin entered the world, but that hard work and toil are a result of the fall. It's essentially Jesus saying, I call you only to do the things that you were created to do, and therefore you will find rest for your souls. I put on you this burden of following me, but I've already paid the price so that when you fail, you will be forgiven. I've taken off of you the burdens that other people have. I've removed the burden of earning your salvation. I've removed the burden of guilt and shame for your past. I've taken the burden of having to prove yourself worthy of my love. I am the only master that will fully satisfy you, that will offer rest. You will be anxious. You will be weary and burdened searching for any other solution. Now, this idea that we see in the invitation, honestly, at first, and probably even to some of us still, seems like a paradox, right? That Jesus offers the promise of rest, but in doing so, he uses a metaphor of work, right? Now, probably many of us aren't as familiar, but he talks about taking my yoke upon you. And then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, uh, probably many of us have not seen a yoke. Uh, maybe if we've been to Amish country, uh, seen some display of some kind, right? Uh, a yoke was a metaphor that was used in work. It was an agricultural uh, device and it was fitted in such a way uh, to bind two oxen uh, bulls together to be able to plow a field. And a yoke uh, was a metaphor in scripture of an obligation or task. We see in 1 Kings 12 that King Rehoboam tried to instill respect for himself by threatening his subjects with a heavy yoke. We see a yoke being symbolized as freedom from the oppressors in Isaiah. Or the beginning of a new phase in life when 
Elisha left his agrarian life to become a disciple of Elijah in 1 Kings. But this picture of the yoke, it teaches you and I some significant things. Here is kind of the picture that we see two animals that are placed together with a device, a yoke, that uh, is used to be able to uh, allow them to plow the field. Now, the first thing is that the yoke teaches us we weren't designed to carry it on our own. It's very obvious, right? But two animals were a part of the yoke. And so this burden that uh, the Pharisees put on the Israelites was heavy. It was an individual burden on their own effort. And Jesus says we weren't designed to carry this burden alone, this impossible task. Second thing is that Jesus invites us into his yoke, to take my yoke upon you. The interesting thing about the yoke uh, was that often they would have an experienced oxen. And uh, this ox uh, would be one who knew the master's commands, uh, knew uh, how to properly uh, plow the field, and they would put someone who's much younger and immature. And this experienced ox uh, would take a heavier load, uh, would lead the other uh, in a form of helping them learn from him. And we see that Jesus does the hard work for and with us. It's this initial and continual relief. He's simply inviting us to get into his yoke. This understanding significantly informs how we think about doing things for Jesus rather than doing things with Jesus. He does the hard work with and for us. Last thing the yoke teaches us, it invites us to learn from his leading. Yoke was a term to describe submission right? And we see that immature ox that would submit to the leadership of the mature ox. It's amazing that Jesus is willing to be yoked with us, right? That no sin was too great, no weakness too much, no failure too excessive. Jesus invites us to take on his yoke, meaning that there's an assumption in the passage that we're already yoked to something else. That it's not possible for you and I to live with a yokeless life, right? You might be thinking of like, why would I want to be yoked to anything? But Jesus' invitation is highlighting the point that all of us are yoked. Maybe it's yoked to seek maximum uh, enjoyment and satisfaction in life. It's kind of the goal, the perspective, the desire of our life, the most important thing. Maybe some of us are yoked to our career to find ourselves worthy that our primary identity is found in our employment. Maybe some of us are yoked in a relationship. What may have started as a healthy interdependence has moved to an emotional dependence. Right, that we can be unhealthily yoked in a relationship if it's not with Jesus. 
We're all yoked to something. The yoke that he offers was different than that of the Pharisee who demanded strict obedience to man-made laws. It was different than the yoke of the world, which demands constant change and evolution of views. He humbly suggests that being yoked to anything else will ultimately destroy us. But he invites us into his yoke to learn from him. Now, you may be thinking, how can there be joy in being yoked and doing work? Well, Bible uses this idea of yoked to picture marriage. And uh, I've had the privilege to officiate uh, quite a few weddings. And I haven't to this day, uh, when the vows come up, seen a bride or groom begrudgingly uh, be willing to be yoked to the other, to make their commitment to one another, right? That there can be joy when the relationship is defined by love, right? That there's a willingness, a joy to be yoked with someone else who has what's best for you. That's why Jesus can say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because he has done the hard work for us and with us. He has perfectly fulfilled the commitments, expectations of the law. He willingly uh, died a death that you and I deserve. He willingly forgives us. He wants to be in relationship to those that are spiritually destitute, downtrodden, brokenness. What burdens are you carrying? How has life left you weary, heavy laden? What are you laboring and striving for? Have you recognized your need? Have you come to him through faith? It's nothing we need to do to make ourselves presentable, acceptable, but rather it's embracing his invitation that's available for all. And this invitation drastically changes our life because we leave every other priority and live with him at the center of our life which defines how we go life. That his yoke is easy, his burden is light. That he wants us to learn from his leading. His invitation is the incentive behind the person. That he is gentle and humble in heart. May his invitation always lead us to uh, experience gratitude. May we find joy in our work alongside of Jesus. May we enjoy following and being submitted to him as the Lord of our life. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. His offer to us today is rest for our souls so that we can enjoy forever being united with him. Father, we thank you for your grace, your abundance, your invitation that allows us, no matter where we're at, to come to you because of your love for us. Lord, we need you. Thank you that you love us so much that you invite us to do life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.